What's so bad about vendor lock-in? Now, those are some serious fighting words in the tech industry, but it's what we're talking about on today's episode of Telemetry Now. Rosalind Whitley, a director of product marketing at Kentic, but also a very experienced developer and sysadmin, joins me to talk about her opinions on open source software, vendor lock-in, and how technologies like cloud containers and, uh, and now automation as well have sort of changed the landscape of what full-stack vendor lock-in looks like. This is one of those episodes where we really get into our opinions and our experiences, and I really love that. I enjoy it very much, and I hope you do too. My name is Philip Gervasi, and this is Telemetry Now. Hey, Roz, thanks for joining today. I really appreciate you joining the podcast. Uh, I've gotten to work with you for a long time now, and actually pretty close on several projects. So I know a little bit about your background. But before we get started today and talking about open source and vendor lock-in, uh, and, and that whole thing. Can you give us a little bit about your background, how you got into tech, actually? Because uh, I do love hearing that from, from my guests and from you know, just friends in general, how they got into a particular field. But also your experience with open source uh, before, before we get into the whole vendor lock-in discussion. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks, Phil. And by the way, thanks for having me on the show today. I, uh, let's see, how did I get into tech? It wasn't really accidental, but uh, I would say a lot of us have non-traditional or non-linear um, oh, sure. ways into yeah. tech, and that's certainly me. So I started out um, when I was quite young. I uh, I was like a bit of a Unix nerd uh, as a as a little one um, when um, personal computers were becoming popular, and I wanted one to watch videos and stuff at home. Um, my father uh, made me sort of maintain my own computer and refused to buy me a windows license. So it's like, if you want to, you know, if you want to watch these videos, you're going to have to get it to work, which was actually hard at that time because there wasn't a lot of support for anyway, blah, blah. So started out with that background and then, um, went on to do my regular school thing. I actually ended up getting a degree in English lit. So I wasn't doing anything tech other than, um, you know, side projects. And then I started with a series of like low level jobs first at a press. And then I was working actually as a receptionist at a veterinary hospital, um, mm -hmm. doing like incorporating tech into my job. So for the first job at the press, I taught myself HTML and CSS so that I could make their email marketing suck less. Um, <laughs> and then at, as the receptionist, I was like, this practice management software is really old. It's really bad. Um, I know you're going to change it. You can either hire me to implement a new system for you or, uh, and I'm really cheap or, you know, you can spend a lot of money on that. And they, they actually took, took me up on that. And then I had, you know, software implementation on my resume and I sort of spun that. But anyway, I had a, a, a series of those kind of like lower level, I would say it jobs or, um, and then, uh, I decided that I wanted to stop telling, asking people if they had plugged it in. Uh, I wanted to stop um, dealing with those types of calls. And um, so I went back to school. I got a, I got a master's in, in information systems, database and internet technologies. And uh, while I was in, while I was actually finishing up school, I got my first real tech job, which um, I was a sysadmin at the University of, ne of New Mexico. Um, 
managing and uh, on-call for learning management systems. And mm-hmm. I wrote, I wrote some, wrote and maintained some backend code um, and a little bit of front end, fr- uh, kind of front end interfaces for um, some internal projects. And I was on call for our Blackboard Learn um, system. And I would say in that job, I learned, I learned what it was like, kind of working on waterfall. Working in an organization that really did did things the waterfall way and did things a slow old school way, and I um, really chafed at that. And there were a lot of budget constraints in that job too because it was was New Mexico and we were really um, trying to keep jobs on prem. And we were also, you know, of course our top priority was serving our students, and I felt that really passionately, but. Sometimes I would be like, you know, if we were running this in the cloud, the students would have a way better experience, et cetera, et cetera. And that, that didn't always get a lot of traction. Um, and so when I moved to um, Portland, Oregon, where I live now, I um, switched up and got a job at Puppet. And so that's how I kind of got back into, that's how I got into open source professionally. Like I had always been mm-hmm. sort of an open source, a lover of open source. Yeah. And used to that very curmudgeonly open source culture that um, that I think is still around, but is less of a thing now. And um, yeah, and then I started working at Puppet, which is um, was an open source infrastructure as code tool. And um, then let's see. After that, I worked for a proprietary distribution of the open source tool Spinnaker, which is a um, a software deployment tool and mm-hmm. uh, b- developed at Netflix. So we had a, a proprietary distro of that. And I worked, actually, I was director of open source there and worked on trying to get people to contribute to Spinnaker. Uh, that was one of my, that was one of my KPIs. And that was pretty hard, I got to say. Yeah. Um, I could tell you more about that if you want. And then, um, then I really switched gears and I started working at a um, platform as a service company called Render. And that was my okay. most recent job before Kentic. So it's really been, um, it's, it's been an interesting journey of looking mm-hmm. at how people think about open source and how people think about their technology choices um, from a lot of different angles. So yeah. I guess I have a lot of opinions about it. <laughs> well, that's why you're here. And your title at one point was Director of Open Source. Right. So that is like the pinnacle of open source curmudgeon, like you said, yeah. Um, yeah, you know what, and you're right. It is depending on the angle from which you analyze this question. What is vendor lock-in? Is it good or bad? Because I know from the networking space, it means one thing. From the infrastructure, like, you know, when, when you're talking about data center infrastructure and, uh, you know, servers and, and um uh, infrastructure as code and all that kind of stuff. That's that's a different uh, that's a different angle. Yeah. But then there's also the business angle. I'm sure that you had to deal with you know the engineering side that had strong opinions about a particular matter, particular deployment, um, uh, particular configurations, all that. And then also from the business side, you had VP of whatever and and C level who were like, yeah, okay, but let's look at the cost. Let's look at day two operations and all these other things. So there's there are a lot of different angles and. I think it's important to balance that out. But one thing I, I would do want to say is that you and I have different backgrounds uh, from a technical perspective because, um, I mean, me, I was – I did start off as a sysadmin simply because that's uh, from going to help desk and then a sysadmin generalist kind of stuff. But very quickly, after only a couple 
couple few years, got into networking, very laser focused on networking. And in networking, unless you're in a kind of like a web scale organization where you're, you're building your own switches, right? And your own like router OS and all that kind of stuff, it's, which some people do, some organizations do that, and you're, or all of your, your, your network gear is like Cumulus Linux or something. Um, which is awesome. Generally speaking, you're married to a vendor. Like your, you know, your 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 deployment is mostly Cisco, with maybe some like you know, uh, some branch offices running this or that, or mostly Juniper. You know, there's the anything but Cisco shop, uh, and and that whole thing. So so that's that's my background, and 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 in that those conversations I have I've had over the years that were people that just loved uh, Cisco or Juniper or Arista or whatever. Uh, partly, I think, because there's an entire educational component. Like, I took all the Cisco certifications. So, mm. of course, you you love it because that's what you know and you're comfortable with and you're successful at. But then there's also those that, that really scoffed at that. Um, so it was really – there was it almost felt like there was no in-between. There were people that were like, anything but Cisco, I'm going to run, you know, my own distros and, and uh, what, what can I buy? Like, what kind of white box hardware can I buy and then put my own OS? And that, that was um, a thing, too. I also think it depends on the industry. <laughs> I remember networking folks in the service provider space and then networking folks in the enterprise space, very different. Very different approach to open source. Um, right. I feel like service providers were much more amenable to, to, to running, maybe, maybe not necessarily open source, let me correct myself, more amenable to running different vendors mm. other than like the big two or three vendors. Mm. You know what I mean? Well, and so. does that mean a mix? Does that mean a mix of vendors or does that more just mean like going out and trying to find a different vendor who isn't in the big two or the big three like do you mm. is there like more heter heterogeneity in the service provider um sort of equipment arsenal well i mean i never worked in the service provider space um but i uh, obviously it's it's so adjacent to what i did anyway that um you know with working with service provider working with those folks, I know that they were, again, more amenable to other vendors. And, and for certain requirements on the back end, like in, a, like in a provider backbone, you need there are certain performance requirements where you might look at a specific vendor, but not because you, you, you want that vendor. Mm. Whereas on the enterprise side, right, you need the performance, and so that's the box that provides that, and yeah. so that's what it is, this many line cards or the, whatever. Whereas on the enterprise side, and I'm sure this is true for providers as well, but I just never observed it. On the enterprise side, I have observed both as a consultant to enterprise and then working several times within the enterprise teams, you know, you just have whatever whatever relationships you've already developed over time with the local sales reps at Cisco or Juniper or whoever or Arista. And so, you know, you, everybody knows their kids' names and, you know, all oh, your kids are with my kids on the basketball team. And so you get these well, I'm only going to buy from this salesperson mm -hmm. or I'm only going to, or, or you have this CIO that had a bad experience with a particular vendor you yeah. know, some years ago, and now it's in their head as uh, like a religious belief that I will never use that vendor again. Yeah. I remember, I remember uh, having a boss that was uh, against specifically the Cisco 2960X switch, which is just <laughs> random. Yeah. It's just like a layer two closet switch. It's there's like nothing going on there. Very little going on. But he had like a couple of um, RMAs he had to do for a project once when they first came out when we were switching over from like the 2960G and S, whatever. whatever. And, uh, and that was it. That was enough for him to say, those are bad switches, blanket statement. I'll never use them again. I don't want to use that vendor again. And, and so, and I'm like, that's not really logical. Like if you look at the, the percentage of how many of those switches switch, uh, or shipped yeah. from their production warehouses and all that versus how many are actual like failed devices. That's they're actually pretty reliable. I think yeah. your, your perception is skewed. So not data driven. But that's driven. from the networking side, right? 
Yeah. I mean, I would say just a little side note there. I think uh, we lie to ourselves that uh, all business decisions are are somewhat logical or should be logical. That's not true. Most people's decisions mm. that they make all the time are emotional. So that person had a you know had some really bad feelings about those switches at one point in time, and they just didn't want to revisit that. I mean, that's that's the yep. stuff that sticks with you. It's a it's a little funny when you when you uh, when you see the way that plays out, though. I think that actually comes up a lot. Like so. In thinking about this conversation, I was thinking a lot about sort of, well, because there's there's vendor lock in and then there's technology lock in, and I think they get okay. I think they get conflated a lot. We can talk more about. Well, can that. you can you define both of those for me then? Yeah. So I understand exactly. What absolutely, you mean. absolutely. So it, it's kind of like, ven, vendor lock in is truly when, essentially like technology choice is completely tied to vendor choice. So if you have chosen a particular okay. technology and I think in the networking world, that's, that's truly what it, what, what you're talking about. Like if there's a particular switch and, and this is where I, so I maybe will reveal a bit of my, um, that I'm still a learner in the, in the networking world, but like, isn't there such a thing as open standards? You can answer that question later. But I, I think like vend, true vendor lock-in is when, is, is when vendor choice and technology choice are completely tied. So if you're choosing a particular technology, you must rely on licensing and probably support from a specific vendor. Um, and if you want to make a change to that, you have to make a change to a complete change to the technology in order to change away from that vendor relationship. Right. Yeah. Whereas yeah. technology choice, um, I'm, I'm perhaps more familiar with this, but I think people think about it as lock-in a lot. So technology choices is more like, um, people talk about, for example, in the, in the cloud, people talk about how you know, you choose, and this was the, the example I was going to give, like people talk about how if you choose one cloud provider, then you end up, you're kind of married to that cloud provider over time. And the more that you build in that cloud, the more what we call gravity you have in that environment and the more money and time and disruption, like business risk, more money and time it'll take and more business risk that you take on to migrate away from that cloud. Now, I would say there's a sort of an asterisk there because it depends on which services you're using in the cloud. If you did like a classic lift and shift and all of your workloads are running on VMs and you're using like what we call commodity cloud services, which are those very foundational I infrastructure as a service pieces where you're essentially renting, like you're renting storage, you're renting compute yeah, right. um, at, at the foundational level. That should be much, much easier. You should have much more freedom to move from cloud to cloud uh, if that's the type of infrastructure you're running versus, you know, you're using DynamoDB, you're using functions as a service, one of the proprietary functions as a service. Um, yep. Or, I mean, there are a ton of, uh, you're using Elastic Beanstalk if you're in, I don't know, 2014 or something. But, you know, there's a lot of, uh, there, there are a lot of those higher level services that have now been built on top of the cloud. And the theory mm -hmm. is that's to lock you into those clouds. And I think that's, that's kind of true. But that's still, that maybe that verges into vendor lock-in because, like, you know, if AWS shuts off your account, they shut off, they can shut off your services and there's no real way to migrate those easily. 
Um, but I think there's a bit of a difference there. And so this is where, um, but I'm curious about kind of what that's like. And yeah, are there, are there open, like, what does it look like if you need to, it seems like since it's capital expenditure that we're talking about in the networking equipment world, it seems like once you've bought it, you use it until end of life, pretty Mm -hmm. much no matter what. Right. So that's kind of different. You're not thinking about migrating necessarily. And when I talk to customers about this, they're, they're not talking about, Oh, you know, we're migrating from Arista to Juniper or something, but they're like, we're, we're now we're buying more of this. So then like, Mm -hmm. what does that look like when you're buying heterogeneous equipment? Um, what does that transition look like? Like, does it yeah, all just work together? Expensive, first of all, because if you're talking about an entire rip and replace, right? It, and it's also depending on the type of budget that you have. So if you're using, if you have the minimal uh, network operations budget, but you get that $5 million grant or that big refresh budget every 10 years, five years, whatever it happens to be. I'm thinking about like government. I did a lot of New York state government, um, counties, a lot of universities, public, you know, part of the SUNY, State University yeah. of New York, um, uh, school districts, big school districts. Yeah. You know, a big school district where I'm from might have uh, 18,000 students, just north of New York City, right? Mm -hmm. And they have a, uh, their budget for the entire district might be $700 million. So when they have a refresh, as much as it's just, quote, air quotes, a school district, it's it's an $11 million project. You know what I mean? And so you go in there as a reseller and you're going to make margin on the gear that you sell. Uh, and so though, you know, you're an engineer, you're, you're making margin on gear uh, just as much as you are on professional services. So yeah, you want to capture as much of that as you can. And if you're looking at um, uh, the day two operations, you're also looking at the, you are looking at the OPEX, like you mentioned. So, you know, Cisco has been really great over the past few decades of developing an educational framework through which people have learned networking. Yeah. That's how I did it. And you're, and you're embedded in it. And that's awesome. I, I don't knock it whatsoever because it's how I built my career. But, you know, it's one of the side effects is that I am much, much more comfortable on a Cisco CLI than I am an, on other CLIs. That, mm. Not as much today, you know, at, at this point in my career, but for many years that was the case. I would very much shy away from uh, other projects. Um, I wouldn't shy away from them. I just struggle with them more, I should say, because you're assigned to projects. Right. Um, and, and so, and so, you know, therein lies the problem for a lot of enterprise. Now, from a technology perspective, right, let's say you, you implement an entire ne- campus network at your university with uh, locations all over the city, major campuses, you have three data centers, and you're running EIGRP. This is a very simple example. EIGRP is Cisco proprietary. You're not running that on other gear. Um, yeah. And therefore, w- you know, you, if you want to switch vendors, you need to do a major overhaul of your network architecture. And there, there are, that's just a simple example. If you're using BFD to, as uh, timers for your network or, or anything else that's related to um, uh, specifically Cisco, you know, there's an architecture choice there. Yeah. Uh, and then you start to apply that um, to other vendors. You don't quite see it as much. But that being said, um, you, you have to sell that, that operations to your customer as well. You're not just selling the $11 million of gear, but now you're saying you don't have any staff that can manage this. But if we go with Cisco, you do. Yeah. <laughs> so... That's all. That's all there. So, so I I look at vendor lock in as being locked into a particular vendor, which usually translates to a particular technology. Um, but but I, I have to admit though, 
I don't necessarily think it's all bad. I think that the industry, our, our tech industry, has this sense of like, that's evil, that's bad, I want to get away from this, vendor agnostic. I'm like, I get it, that sounds good. But there's a whole slew of problems with, with a vendor agnostic environment, where now you have like, you don't have consistent um, features, you know, across a, an entire end to end, uh, or maybe you're, you're calling up five different TACs, right? So you're calling JTAC and Cisco TAC, and you know, I don't know what Arista calls their TAC. Um, Maybe there's certain interoperability issues. You don't see that quite as much today, but maybe there are certain interoperability issues with uh, uh, with one line card and then bugs. Right, I have bugs in all my my Juniper gear, mm -hmm. but not my Cisco gear. Now you're just like trying to troubleshoot that uh, security patching. You can't do it as easily because you have to look at it as vendor by vendor. Right. Um, all of these issues in a in a vendor agnostic environment, but but I do get it. You have more control. So you know, one of the things that I like to to say to folks that that kind of argue with me about vendor lock-in and how they're so against it. I'm like, listen, I'm sitting here and you're sitting there. I got a MacBook, an iPhone, an iPad over here, maybe an Apple Watch, and it's like, you're doing fine. Like you've bought into the ecosystem for a reason. There are certain benefits. And so when you're all Cisco, all Juniper, there are certain benefits. You get massive discounts <laughs> from a business perspective. You get, uh, you're calling TAC, and that's it, Cisco TAC. Uh, possibly if your organization is big enough, you get like special tech where you get a special like, you know, bat phone, bat line, whatever they're called, you know, Batman's direct line. Um, and, and I'm sure that's the same with other vendors as well. So I don't, I just don't see vendor lock-in as, as much of a negative as some technologists claim it to be. Does that I, I, I mean, okay. Well, first of all, to your point about the iPhone, and maybe this is just because I'm always going to be an open source nerd. I bought an iPhone a few years ago. At this point, it must have been, I don't know, five years ago or something. And now I'm now I'm in the, like, I'm in their web. And before that, I always had an Android phone. And I loved, I loved certain things about that. And I loved certain things about the customization that I could do with that. But now I have this iPhone. And... I feel like I'm stuck. I do have, I do have, you know, a, a couple of MacBooks that I've, that I've uh, mostly through, mostly from my employers, you know, mm -hmm. but, um, so, so I guess it's kind of nice with that, but then they also want me to buy their, you know, I've got to buy some software subscription to sort, to, to keep track of my data across devices. I really don't like that. And now actually I've been, mm -hmm my partner has a, has an Android phone now and I've been experiencing a lot of jealousy about like, but yeah. then what, in, and it's, it's true. There's gravity because in order to switch over, um, I will have to figure out how to, um, migrate all, all of my data that I still care about next time I upgrade to a new phone. So there's that. Yeah. Um, but also mm -hmm. I think, I think, uh, like on the enterprise side, there's risk, like the, the big risk with vendor lock-in specifically to me seems like you're, you are relying on one vendor for innovation. So, and, and I don't, maybe this is where like, you, again, you can, you can tell me from a networking perspective, this is different, but like, is there not a level of innovation that you're missing out on when you're tying your, when you're sort of tying your horse to one wagon. Um, and does that matter in the networking world? Like, does that even matter from a security perspective? So if, if you're, if you're relying on one vendor 
to do all of the security legwork for you and and you have essentially like all of your eggs in one basket, like doesn't that mean that if someone figures out what the vulnerabilities are in that vendor's um in that vendor's implementation of the hardware and their software, then you are like left holding the bag for like what I don't know. And and that's why there it does. Huh? That's totally true. That's I mean, totally true. And that's why RFPs are really important. That's why analysts exist, right? Because they they're supposed to tell us. They're supposed to tell us who's trustworthy. We look at customer references too. But I mean, to a to a point, like, do any of us really know? Like, do any of us really know if what we're using is totally secure? Do any of us really know um, what the vulnerabilities are? I think I think hindsight's twenty twenty there. Um, and I think, but maybe the innovation thing doesn't matter as much because like maybe in the networking world, things move more slowly. Yeah, they do. Especially because the idea of networking is that you touch anything, you wiggle any wire, you're directly impacting the business in the sense of like, you know, application delivery and service delivery. Yeah. So the, the key for mo most network people in my opinion, based on my experience, is stability, reliability, uh, predictability. Yeah. Innovation happens, sure, but how many network engineers running, you know, the network at a university, even very high-level, multiple CCIEs, JNCIEs, are like coming up with new networking concepts? I mean, they're maintaining the network. Maybe they're designing architecture. I'm not saying that that's not a, a heavy lift and and very uh, interesting uh, and and intellectually stimulating and difficult work, but yeah. they're not necessarily innovating in the sense that they're coming up with new protocols and, and new things like that. Um, and that would be and, scary and, if they did, I guess. What's that? that? That would be kind of scary if they were doing that. Yeah, and there's always, and I do believe in the concept of being an engineer though. So I like to look at the technology landscape that's before me and say, how do I solve this particular problem? I don't immediately say, well, we need to buy a new box that'll do this. Well, that's not yeah. that's not necessarily going to fix it. I got, I got this, you know, bandwidth uh, issue over here and this uh, choke point and blah, blah, blah. Okay, well, let's just buy a bigger box and, and call up our sales rep and, and buy a bigger box with bigger bandwidth. Well, hold on a second. Let's analyze the traffic. Are we doing this inefficiently? Like, what's going on? So I do believe in being an engineer. Yeah. But this, and I also agree with your point about the whole security concept. Because if you are completely in bed with one vendor and then there is a vulnerability that comes out, right, which happens from time to time, you know, uh, yeah, you're, you're vulnerable across your entire organization. So how do you mitigate that? How do you decrease your blast radius from a security perspective or from a functionality perspective, which for me, I've always looked at it as this concept of having different degrees of vendor lock-in. Mm. It's not that everything I own is Cisco or Juniper, or I only own one device from each vendor so I can have as much variety as possible. I don't, I don't really look at it at the two extremes. Those are the two walls, right? Yeah. And then I find that a good place to be in the middle. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Yeah. 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 So like, let's say my perimeter firewalls are all Palo Alto mm -hmm. and my inline IDS IPS, I find that I'm getting better performance with a different vendor, right? Or whatever. Yeah. Uh, let's say I offload certain things to uh, some CASB, you know, from my branch offices, yet a third vendor. All my switching is Cisco because I'm comfortable with them for whatever reason. So all my IDF, MDF switching is Cisco. My cores are Cisco. And then my SD-WAN is Silverpeak. Yeah. Um, so I'm connecting with Silverpeak. So I have these layers or blocks of networking. And and within the, the realm, I might go with a vendor. So I have that interop. I don't have an interop problem or, or a feature problem. 
But then when I go outside of that, I'm just moving packets, like you said, right? You, I think you mentioned it earlier. Isn't this stuff, uh, you know, industry standard? So I'm just moving packets, and then I, I'm not relying on features at that point. So that's kind of how I look at it as far as, like, the degrees of vendor lock-in. You know what I mean? Yeah, I mean, I think that's a really, I think that's a really smart way to look at it is to kind of um, is to div- divide up um, and, and it sounds like you're what you're what you're talking about is being strategic. You mentioned like you know you're actually looking at and that that's engineering too, right? That's looking mm-hmm. at like this. I'm getting better performance out of this, or or you know I have this particular gotcha with these types of devices, um, yeah. and I'm going to I'm gonna you know steer clear of that. And you did make me back to you know as a salesperson, someone saying oh like you know I'm having this I'm having this weird problem with this box it's very easy as a salesperson to come in there and be like, well, you just need, like, you just need this latest thing. So I think that goes back to my question earlier is like, how, how do you know when it's time to replace part of your fleet? Even if you are doing that, like sort of vendor, um, uh, I guess what you're talking about, which is like dividing parts of your architecture among different vendors. Like there's gotta be a point where you know that, where you know that, it's time to um, time to throw like throw a bigger box at the situation, yeah. and yeah, I think yeah. understanding that is hard can be hard, and I guess that depends on the use case though. Like if you're doing high frequency trading or something, that's different than yeah. um, you know managing like email for like managing a school district, which a lot of the workloads are going to be like uh, office software and email and uh, and you know yeah. remote remote learning these days, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I get it. It's different when you start talking about the, you know, the, 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 there are differences in uh, how open one can be and how vendor lock-in, you know, plays into the equation when you talk about networking, compute, storage, yeah. cloud, you know, those are different realms of technology. So I get that there are differences. You know, for example, um, you know, it would be hard pressed to go to a, let's say a mid-sized school district. I would be hard pressed to find the IT staff uh, be comfortable with managing eight different vendors. Mm. So an estimate from one vendor switching from another vendor, um, they do it because you know the budget is the budget, and you you know it's your job, uh, so you do it. And 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 so it, there is that benefit of having everything from one vendor, and so you can get the help that you need. Because you know you're not necessarily going to talk about you know having a staff of <laughs> again you know it, uh, the highest level engineers at, at, as an example at a small mid sized organization. Yeah. Which always boggles my mind how some of the vendors, how the networking vendors, consider small and medium-sized organizations. I remember doing, you know, projects and, you know, whatever. You know, I'm doing projects. I'm, I'm with VARS, and I'm working on my Cisco certifications. And you read in the textbook, you know, they'll say something like a small, a small organization with 10,000 users. And I'm like, what? In what? On what planet? So it's like the perspective is is a little different. Yeah. But you know, who who can afford? Three CCIEs, a JNCIE, these like Linux gurus that, and they cost hundreds of thousands of dollars each. You're not going to necessarily see that at a small organization. Yeah. So that, that came to mind. I think like talent and staffing costs is a huge part of this conversation that, um, that sometimes gets, sometimes gets talked about and sometimes doesn't. And I don't know if this is controversial, but it's like maybe, well, okay, I'll go back to sort of. And I think when I was talking about the um, emotional-based decisions before, I always think about this project that I did pretty recently while I was at Render, um, interviewing 
um, a lot of different uh, startup founders or CTOs of different startups, people who are kind of in our ICP, our ideal customer that we were going for. Um, And we would ask them how, because our, our, what we're trying to figure out, you know, how to sell more render, which if you're not familiar with render, it's, uh, it's, it's similar to Heroku, um, but it's sort of built for the container, uh, cloud native and built for the, built for the container sphere. Um, okay. And we would ask people like, why did you choose, like, how did you start using, a lot of them are using AWS or maybe they're, they've got their workloads mostly on Google cloud or maybe they yeah. are using DigitalOcean or Heroku. And we would ask them, like, why did you choose that? And this came to mind when you were talking about evaluating which vendor to go with for a particular type of networking equipment. Um, mm-hmm. oh, and I expected them to say, oh, you know, well, we looked, you know, at least say we priced out um, what this would be as we scaled and what this would be. And we decided that this would be better or we wanted the features. Like we wanted, we, we really liked this uh, high availability database available from this provider and we wanted to go with that. And then it made sense to have everything in that same network. People almost never yeah. said that they would say, and maybe this is just startup startup world, but they would say, well, you know, one night we were working on building this and um, my buddy was really comfortable with using this particular service in AWS or my, or, you know, they had used Google cloud before at their last job. And that was what they were most familiar with most recently. And we built it in that and they would say, you know, and it would be like, well, what would it take for you to switch? Right. And same with Heroku, like people would, people would have started running something on Heroku. And even though support Heroku support has gotten pretty bad after the company was acquired by Salesforce, like it was really hard for them to switch. And on the one hand, that's, that is like, I think staffing is a huge part of it. Right. And I don't know if this is where like DevOps engineers, infrastructure engineers are a bit different than like, is it easier to ask a network engineer to switch to learn something new or use a different, um, use a different vendor or a different framework than what they're used to. Is that easier than asking a DevOps or infrastructure engineer? Cause one of the other things I know, like infrastructure engineers are very scarce. I don't know how scarce network engineers are. I think they are, but maybe they're less scarce. Um, and what it also seemed like is like, well, this is what our CTO is really comfortable with. And we don't really want to poke him too hard. Like we don't really want to put, take, we don't want to take our engineers out of their comfort zone. And we find this at really big companies too. Like you'll get, that happens with like acquisitions, mergers and acquisitions, right? Like a huge company will buy a, buy a, buy a company, it becomes a subsidiary and they have a choice. Like they could, they could make the engineers running the workload, um, migrate or use their standards that they already had or they can let them continue doing business as usual. Part of the reason that they don't that they oftentimes don't like force standardization on new, on newly joined engineering teams is that they 
um, want the workload, you know, if it's a money-making workload, they want to keep it in place. But even when that's not the case, like even when those engineers are building new applications, I found that they are often, it's like, well, we let, we wanted to let them use what they wanted to use because we didn't want their productivity to go down. And it's also, I think like the subtext there is we didn't want to make them mad because we didn't want them to quit because it's hard to hire these people. So I think, I think that's where like people's feelings about different frameworks and different tools and also their comfort level and what they know is really important. And, and I mean, staffing is the most expensive part of all of this. Like paying engineers is way more expensive than paying your cloud provider or, and, and I don't know if it's more expensive than paying Cisco for all your equipment. Maybe it is, maybe it isn't. Um, and is that, yeah. well, I mean, the thing yeah. is that a lot of these vendors make it easy for you to stay with them or they, they incentivize the crap out of it. How? So for example, yeah. oh, you have all, I'll stick with Cisco, but you have all Cisco gear and it's time for your refresh. You're kind of starting that email chain with the, uh, with your AM or whatever they're called, the, the, the salesperson. Yeah. And they're like, oh, great. We have a buyback problem program. Mm -hmm. We'll get rid of that. We'll recycle it for you. We'll purchase that. And we'll give you this much off of, you know, um, uh, the, uh, the, whatever the price is. Uh, the list price on all your gear, and all of a sudden it, it becomes very attractive um, to just always stay with, with the vendor as a result, um, as opposed to switching vendors. But that's the thing. It's like, it's almost like going from one vendor lock-in to another vendor lock-in. Right. You know what yeah. I mean? So it's like, oh, I'm going to get away from vendor lock-in, so I'm going to get rid of all my Cisco and go to all Juniper. And it's like, well, wait, hold on, hold on a second. Yeah. <laughs> you, didn't, you didn't resolve the problem. You just changed from one vendor to another. Right. So for me... This idea of vendor locking is lock in is getting away from relying on a vendor for all of it in the first place, and again, it's harder to do on the network side than than a lot of what you're experiencing and what you've been talking about, except for maybe cloud because once you start to build out your entire application delivery service and workloads in AWS, which by the way they have like seventy five percent of the market share, yeah. so you know it's what it is. Um, you, you're kind of stuck there. And, you know, the idea where people are like in seven different clouds and on-prem, I mean, I, I don't see that quite as much. I think the reality is like, I got to keep the lights on, uh, you know, and I can't, I can't keep always trying to like win these religious arguments and wiggle wires to make things a little bit more efficient um, or to take advantage of this feature over here that we don't really need because everything is working fine now. Try convincing, you know, your VP of whatever of that. And, and then get the budget to do it. It's very, very difficult. Um, yeah. But, you know, uh, that, that begs the question, is, is vendor lock-in really that bad? Um, is it just a negative connotation we'd have, we've attached? I mean, lock-in sounds ugly, you know? Should we call it something like um, vendor dedication? No, that's dumb. <laughs> you know, vendor loyalty. Oh, I don't know. That's, that's You a, just want to reframe it so that people... See, you all want to reframe it so people will feel better about it. Right now, people... I have a degree in English Lit as well. That's what <laughs> I went to college for. I taught high school English for five years. So I, agree, I believe... Other people have disagreed with me over the years in our space, in our tech world, uh, our tech industry. I believe that words are extremely powerful, yeah. extremely powerful. You can cast and the connotation uh, is so different than a denotation from, from in, in circumstances that you can cast a completely different um, uh, uh, tone and and feel and, and emotion based on just your diction. You know which words you use to convey the same exact thing that you could do very differently. And so, um, isn't that what we do in marketing? That's what I was going to say. Can... That's how I ended up in product marketing. 
I, you know, I, I like to talk about the tech. I like to think about, you know, why people are using it and what they care about and what are the drivers that, that make people success, you know, succeed or fail with it. But like, it's really about how you talk. I mean, one of the things I'm doing this week is thinking up, thinking up tags for our, for our booths at different events. Mm -hmm. And like, do you know how hard that is to think, you know, how do I say exactly what I want to say in five words that people are going to understand, but they're not going to misunderstand. It's going to stand out. I mean, it's really, really, Mm -hmm. it's really hard. It doesn't, it's one of those things that doesn't look like work, but, but it is work. And it is so much more difficult to say something briefly, concisely, and still accurately, correctly to convey that meaning than it is to write it like a treatise (laughs) for page after page after page where you're just kind of going on and on. It's much more difficult to be concise and, and retain clarity, accuracy, and, uh, and, and retain the message that you're trying to convey. Um, which, you know, maybe that's, maybe that's the problem. You know, we use the term vendor lock-in and we've uh, absorbed that into the industry as a negative thing. And, uh, and therefore, there's just this subtext, this presupposition that having one vendor is bad. Yeah. But is it? Do we need to go deeper? And, and that's my argument is that I don't think it's that bad. I, I really think that we, you have to analyze it like an engineer and say, all right, all my, all my switching gear is from this one vendor. All my front end is going to be in AWS. All my back end is going to be in Azure. And, and, and what you do is you, mit- you mitigate that the blast radius, first of all, from a security or a failure, your failure domain is, is shrunk. So now if my front end goes down, it's not my entire infrastructure. If I'm doing a lift and shift, or if I'm doing a rip and replace on the network side, I am just doing, you know, just the, just my switching. And, you know, you, you can do yeah. that in, in pieces, closet by closet, or just my firewalls or something like that. And so um, it, it keeps things more manageable. Um, it also reduces, like you said, the expectation of staff to know everything that exists. Yeah. I, I do believe that there are engineers out there for sure, network engineers uh, uh, in particular, that are willing to learn the next thing because that's who they are. Right. But that, that is a to say, oh yeah, you know, all network engineers are like that. I don't, you know, I obviously can't say that. There's all sorts. There's network admins that just, you know, they're they're punching the clock, and then there's network engineers that can't stop learning. Um, and it, again, that's there are folks that are just grounded in the fundamentals more than they are in a particular vendor CLI. Yeah. Right. I mean, I think that's so on the again on the software side, I think there's this there's this sort of wisdom that's that that's floated around. Um, I mean, re- it's been a while, but this choose I'm trying to remember what the name of the guy who did this original talk, um, but it's choose boring technology. Right. So his, his argument is mm-hmm. is pre predisposed on the fact that, you know, we're all engineers. Most of us like to tinker. We like to, I'm an ideas person. I like to imagine the way that something could be architected, the way that a new new platform or new service could could change or improve the way that 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 something works. Like I, I love thinking about that. And um, there are a lot of engineers also who love building and it's fun to build stuff and it's hard, but you feel really good when you get it to get it to work and all of that. I mean, I think we're all we all have these, like, we like doing that. That's why we came, that's why we came into this field and taking that to, when you take those skills to a company that can be good and that can be bad, right? Because you actually don't always want to be using the newest, most exciting thing that you want to play with. Um, that's not that a lot of times that's not actually your job. 
your job is to is to as you said keep the lights on with uh, what you got. Your job is to, um, or your or your job is to choose the most reliable, um, most known pieces of technology that you can put together. Some every every technology has its downsides. Like there are things that there are things that really suck about every piece of technology, even stuff that we think is really cool and exciting. So I I think there's yeah this wisdom that like you kind of have to um, suppress that desire to always re-architect things or always explore mm-hmm. the newest thing. And sometimes you have to use the boring stuff that maybe is not your favorite. Um, yeah, I don't know when it when it comes to if, if vendor lock-in is is really that bad. I mean, I think what you're pointing to is that it also depends on what area of technology we're talking about. So in, so in networking, yeah, it's right. different. And like database, database stuff comes to mind for me there too. And when I was a sysadmin at UNM, um, we used, we used Oracle, had Oracle licensed for Blackboard Learn and, and other apps. And so I ended up learning a lot about, um, learning a lot about, I mean, specifically like Oracle 12C uh, Oracle database 12C and what were some of the things that I needed to, to, um, pay attention to with that. And I mean, that was a very lock, that was a very locked in situation. That's not, that's not Postgres. Right. Um, and, but did, but did that have negative effects on your ability to deliver the services and applications? Did it have a negative impact? You know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, I think, I think it, I think there, there were things that, where I think yes a bit I think that um there were times when like there were there would be like this one problem like I would get a page in the middle of the night and I would be like oh you know um there's like a 90% chance that it's this one problem that I've seen before and because it's on the database side there's nothing that like like when when this connection gets reset, and this is also partly because the application I was using was not something that I had architected for this particular Blackboard Learn. This particular application was not something that I could I could really rewrite the code on. Uh, so it, there was this one there was this one thing that when we upgraded to twelve C, it would it would when it when a particular connection would reset, it would crash the application, and there was like nothing that we could do about that. And, um, so, I mean, maybe, yeah, that's a, that's a really, but I think like what's interesting about it is that if you look at what's happened in database technologies, um, in the last decade or decade plus, um, I mean, there's been a lot of interesting innovation. I mean, there's, there, there's a lot, a lot of interesting stuff that's happened from Hadoop that's, that ages me. Um, you know, equal, no sequel stuff. Um, now we have, uh, I, I think like the way that we think about, about rows and columns has both stayed the same and changed a lot, um, over the last 10 years. But I think that what's interesting is that companies like ClickHouse and Snowflake are super successful now. I don't know about ClickHouse, but I know Snowflake, like it's their, all their data is in a proprietary format. Like that's a completely proprietary solution. So I think like mm-hmm. the tolerance for um, vendor lock-in or even technology lock-in kind of varies from different 
in different areas. So I think like when it comes to data, but you know, the like Hadoop was really exciting once, once upon a time that was 2009 to 2013 about people were really excited about this open source solution that had been developed at Google. And, um, and I mean, around that time, people were also just really excited about, you know, like data lakes, like, oh, like I can put this unstructured data into a data lake and then I, and then I can do anything with it. I, and I, and I don't have, I don't have to figure out how to translate what's in my Oracle database to, um, this other place, this other type of application that I want to use that same data. And I mean, that was an annoying problem, but the thing is like, no matter how you slice it, there's, um, there, like your staff either has to be really good at doing one thing that that they have limited ability to like change how it works and so they're kind of locked in in that way or your staff has to understand how to use a bunch of different kinds of things which is never going to be perfect and like they're going to be problem I think there's problems on either side I guess is what I'm thinking yeah yeah Oh, there totally are. Because if, you, if you're looking at, hey, here are the constraints that I'm locking myself into because I'm pur purchasing this vendor. And so here are the constraints that are inevitable because that's the vendor. These are the things that, these are the limitations. Yeah. That's the framework. But then you look at that and you say, is the trade-off worth it? Because here are the benefits. Well, let's weigh that out. So you make a decision as an engineer. Maybe the answer is, yeah, those limitations, I can live with them because my goodness, look at all the benefits yeah. that I get. Or, or maybe the answer is no. It's like, geez, Louise, you know, the, the benefits are nice, but I have, I'm really limited in what I can do here. And I don't know if that's going to be good for the yeah. future. I mean, just as an example, I did consulting for a very large organization, as in hundreds of thousands of employees, right? Global. And uh, I'll leave the, the name off because they have uh, multiple BUs, some of them being like nuclear energy and things like that. And so uh, they had a relationship with one of the biggest networking vendors in the world. That was the standard. They only bought from them everything. Mm -hmm. um, and the reason was not necessarily because they loved the vendor, but because at that level of purchasing power, they were able to work with the vendor to scrub code to scrub the operating system code of all the different network devices and to have a, a special pathway to like at that level with the networking vendor so they could ensure, you know, the benefits, right? That's we're weighing this out. They could ensure certain level of, of security, uh, robustness and uh, features and whatever, you know, so if they needed something, they can get their own, literally their own code versions to, to mm. accommodate. Now, that is an exceptional example, right. though. I mean, that's not what most people are going to be weighing. Um, so in that sense, they don't have vendor lock-in. They have, we just told the vendor what we want. So it, 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 like theoretically, they don't have vendor lock-in. They have just the purchasing power to do anything they right. want. And, and other organizations that operate at that scale, instead of working with a network vendor to do that, have chosen to just build their own OSs and write right. their own uh which code or, or, you know, with their own, you know, Google did this with uh, containerization, right? Look at Kubernetes and what we yeah. have now with that. But that, that kind of makes me wonder, what is your opinion about how things have gone? You, you mentioned 10 plus years. Let's, let's shrink that down to the past mm -hmm. few years, right? With the cloud is ubiquitous. Containerization is, is pretty ubiquitous now as well. And this concept of open source is, is, you know, that's, it's different than in 2005. It's, it's much more uh, prolific and common today. Yeah. So do you think that the open source community and just in general technology has changed to more embrace more of this 
vendor agnostic uh, concept in the past few years? I mean, I actually think that's a good question. I actually think like the the open source community itself has always been really a, like against the idea of vendor locking yeah, almost right. as like a libertarian ideal, right? And so that's pretty exactly. that's that hasn't changed, but I think like honestly a lot of those people who um, were part of the early kind of Unix, um, uh, well, sort of proliferation of Unix into into different operating systems and also into the main, mainstream participation in the economy. I think that yeah. that a lot of those people who were involved in that like aren't really. There's a new generation of people who doesn't connect with that as much, um, and I think that 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 has changed. But I also think that the way that companies have thought about um, because this is capitalism, right? So the way that companies have thought about making money off of open source, there's been a lot of trial and error along the way. I mean, you've got, you've got Red Hat Enterprise Linux, like that's, that's sort of the, that was the original dream. And, um, I think that not that, not that many companies have been able to replicate, um, that as a, as a, as a revenue model, um, and so, I mean, just as you're talking about just in the last five years, well, I think about from my personal experience, um, Puppet, right? So I worked at Puppet and, um, at a certain point, Puppet was used in more than 90% of the fortune 500. That's open source Puppet. Sure. Puppet tried that. really, and, and it was a, I mean, it, it really changed ops. Um, and it, and they really, they weren't the first infrastructure as code company, but they really popularized infrastructure as code and made it what, made it what it became. And they, um, were never able to monetize. Like they were never really able to successfully monetize it. And they were acquired last year by Perforce and, um, the original, you know, original participants in that didn't, didn't make much money off of it. And even despite like the, what, what you might consider like a huge success, like they changed the world, they, they changed the world of, of a large scale computing operations, but that wasn't enough or it wasn't modeled correctly for them to make money off of it. And Docker is another great example of that. And this is, this probably, yeah, this is less than five years ago, right? Like the, the rise and fall of Docker. So Docker, again, what, containerization is a very old idea and Docker didn't start it, certainly, but they had a great UX and they um, had great integration with other technologies. And they also had, you know, really good, really good marketing. And just it, it really caught fire and everybody started using it. We still use it. I still use it. And um, they were never able to monetize it. And it's and it's kind of sad when you think about like the ingenuity that went later. We talked about innovation earlier. Like when you think about the innovation that went into that and how it really did make these big shifts. Um, but monetizing it is tricky. And when I worked at Puppet, I remember they were saying, uh, we were working on releasing a new product and we were talking about, well, should we make this open core or closed core? And I think a lot of folks have moved to the place where they want to have a proprietary closed core. And then on top of that, I think the the dream now for these, not for a big company like AWS or Google, AWS and Google, and particularly Google, it is in their best interest to like invest in an open, like they'll hire a whole team of engineers to work on an open source 
product. And that's what happened with Kubernetes. Like Kubernetes is not yep. like some, um, you know, like people holding hands, working together for free on a piece of software in their spare time. Like that is not what it is. It was a bunch of huge companies realizing that if they, that they, they had a unique shared interest in this open source project and that they could, um, that, that they could make it something special together and that they could share resources essentially through this. Um, and so I think that, I think that for those smaller companies who maybe don't have that same ability or impetus to invest in an open source product like that, where they have a whole team of people just working on this stuff that maybe doesn't directly benefit the company's bottom line, a closed core model is really popular. And so they like to have, they'll do like a marketplace where people can create their, and Puppet tried to do this a bit, but they'll have a marketplace where people can build their own modules or things on top of the closed core and that gives it an open source vibe where people are contributing and you're getting the benefit of of diverse expertise but the company itself their investment is protected and there's been some other interesting like so mongodb there, there's some different licensing licensing stuff that's gone on uh what's that what's that license called where uh it's it's sa um, it's like the licensing where, um, you, all, another company can use your, like if another, it's written into the license that if another company is going to use your solution to, um, to, to monetize a product, then they have to release a version of that into open source. So it's sort of preventing, preventing, um, really the cloud providers, I think primarily from, yeah. you know, eating the lunch of these smaller startups that have poured a lot of money into mm -hmm. this open source project. And then it, uh, and then it, then like AWS is able to throw a ton of money at, at marketing the product and making it more usable. And yeah. then, uh, so it, it sort of like, like, I guess detracts, um, or makes it, makes it less attractive for companies to do that innovation. So I think there've been some interesting things, but I think like how we monetize open source, um, has, is still a bit of an open question because economic factors are always at play when, with how companies succeed, sure. there are always a lot of factors. I don't think there's a model that definitely works. And I think that that impacts enterprises as they make these decisions. I think enterprise decision makers want to go to a meeting and say, you know, vendor lock-in is bad. Like let's, let's do something else. I think that, that you're right. We have a negative association with that and people want open source, but, but, um, which, which products to use and which products to make a bet on, um, is still kind of a difficult decision. Um, and in the, in the end, yep. it's, yep. it's those high paid and highly paid engineers who are really like making it happen and hooking all the Legos together. Um, and they'll need to sometimes knock those Legos down and hook them together again. And that's really expensive and that hasn't changed. Yeah. You know what? I, one of the things that I'm teasing out from what you said is that things in the past five years, 10 years more, it's just, pro, it's progressive and iterative. So I can't really say the last <laughs> five years, but especially in the last few years, uh, application delivery, I'm going to use that term very broadly. So that means the backend workloads, the networks, cloud, um, uh, SaaS, containers, all the advancements going on in networking, data center networking, wireless technology, everything, all the way down to the endpoint, all of that stuff is basically getting uh, a human being to their data, 
usually delivered as an application, yep. right, has become so complex and big. Think about the system. If I were to say, how do I get this? Think about all the components involved with storing the data, creating the data, making it accessible to you, getting you to it, securing it. There are so many components um, across the tech stack that it's got so complex that interoperability and multi-vendor is the default. Yeah. And so if we want to manage this system efficiently, effectively, successfully, we have to be managing these multi-vendor environments. Yeah. Um, but that's multi-vendor among technologies, not necessarily within networking and within the cloud. It's the connection right. of them. Nevertheless, nevertheless, I feel like, okay, so I want to automate that because it's so complex, we have to move the operations needle forward and make this easier. So let's automate it. So infrastructure is code, network automation, Puppet, Chef, Ansible. You know, I can drop into a Python prompt in my in my Nexus, which is now, right? <laughs> Um, you can do all that now because I believe the, the complexity that we are now seeing uh, in, again, service application delivery has forced vendors' hands into making this a little bit, like I, I just mentioned, you can drop into a Python prompt in Nexus. Yeah. You, know? you have Cisco DevNet, you have Juniper and, and um, Arista being very open to being able to use your own tools to manage infrastructure and to manage connectivity between your uh, Silver Peak SD WAN and making it very easy to connect to your AWS workloads because they know that's what you're going to do. So they're, we're forcing the hand of vendors to be more interoperable because we have there the, the the nature of what we do now is by definition vendor agnostic or at least it's not completely heterogeneous. Yeah. I should say uh, across the entire tech stack. Now that being said, I believe that one of the ways that engineers moving forward that perhaps want to get away from vendor lock-in within a specific niche mm -hmm. of the tech stack, right? So just networking, for example. I know I go back to networking so much, Roz, but that's who I am. That's why we're here. Is to start, yeah, is to start looking at like, how can I move away incrementally and say, let's go with this vendor for our perimeter, this vendor for our security CAS, you know, we're going with a CASB for our security, for branch offices, mm -hmm. whatever. And here we're using this for our closet and, uh, and, and MDF switches. So I, I think we can look at it in those kind of blocks. And that's a good pathway forward that doesn't require spending all the money in the world, that doesn't require, you know, restaffing and retooling all your engineers, at least not to the extent that it would if you replaced everything. And so the things that you were just talking about, in, in you know, when you were just talking about um, the changes that uh, cloud vendors have been doing and, and also coming together to create this you know, new environment of, of application workload creation and, and maintenance, I think, I, think that's, I think that's where we are, is that we have to have all these things working together. And so it, it just requires that we, we have a little less vendor lock-in. I mean, listen, back in the day, I had like my computer and there was some Cat 3 or Cat 5 going down the hall. There were some switches, you know, maybe a router at the end, right? And my DNS server was local, my DHCP server wow. was local, my Active Directory service was local. Our applications were either in the building or maybe, you know, in some data center yeah. in the basement, but everything was very local. And so you could have a lot more um, uniformity. Yeah. I don't think that's no. the case. It's just not the case. It's just not the case. And that's, and that's not going to go away. And I, I think like, you know, some people say they, they think that ultimately the, the cloud providers are going to stick more to selling those commodity 
selling those commodities um, because they end up like they can. So Snowflake, like Snowflake's renting EC2 servers to which I mean, definitely like abstracting away um, network and and compute servers like that's that's where we're yeah. that's where we're moving and that i think that change is here to stay but um i think you know some people say that like the cloud providers or even like if we think about it's not there are the cloud providers aren't the only ones who like equinix right like so equinix and the cloud providers maybe own that commodity space and then it's really like these smaller companies so yeah snowflake they're running their workloads on EC2 and then they are um, essentially like selling that service at a, at a higher price point. Render does the same thing, not on EC2, but they're r- running things on, on GKE and, and then they're selling that, selling that as a service at a higher price point. And in the end, like AWS or Google Cloud like they still get money from that, right? Like they're still getting money from the commodity, uh, from from selling those commodities to Snowflake yeah. to to render, and then you know Snowflake's taking yeah. on the marketing costs, the the staffing costs for building it, all of that, and they're kind of like, it's almost like outsourcing those top level services like the DynamoDB yeah. or the the services that they're selling, outsourcing that to other companies. And in the end, that may not be a bad business model for them. But I think it, it yeah, everything, the, the key is if, if we have this landscape where it's all of these different vendors selling all of these small services that are really good at doing what they do, and then we have to link all of those up, those are the Legos that we combine to make our, to make our, um, our applications and our services work for our customers. I think, yeah, everything has to be interoperable and it's in particularly those smaller software vendors um, beyond the big three, it's in their best interest to make everything interoperable and to cooperate. But I I think organizing that cooperation and making it, making it good is also a hard job. That's probably for another episode to talk about what it's like to get involved with the, um, with the cloud native computing foundation and the Linux foundation itself. Um, but you know, that's, I don't think that's a totally solved problem. It's like, what's the best way for people to collaborate in the open domain and who governs it and what does governance look like? Um, but I think it's important mm. because it impacts us, you know, it, it impacts all of us um, from the software that we use to, to you and me, our, our jobs, you know, trying to help enterprises um, get a handle on their networks. And we're nowhere close to that. Like we're nowhere close to that time when, the cloud providers own all of the own all of the networks and we don't have to care about it. I mean, we're nowhere, nowhere near that. And thank goodness, because that's why, that's why they need Kentic, right? To be able to yeah, understand yeah, all sure. of that. Yeah. yeah. Roz, I think that's a, actually a great place for us to end because, uh, you know, on what better note than to, to mention that, uh, yeah, that's kind of one of the goals that we do at Kentic is to be able to provide visibility regardless of the vendor, uh, you know, that, that you're running in your yeah. network. So anyway, Roz, thank you so much for, for joining today. I really appreciate it and the, the conversation and really just kind of fleshing yeah. this out, you know. Uh, what our audience doesn't know is that we have next to no show notes today because I really just wanted to talk to Roz and pick her brain and get her get her thoughts on this whole vendor lock-in thing, primarily because I thought we disagreed. But here we are at the end, and I think we agree more than we disagree. Uh, I don't I'm know, sorry I didn't I didn't fight with you at all, Phil. I, I tried a little... <laughs> 
That makes a good podcast. I, I tried to I tried to fight with you. We can do a part two, and I'll I'll fight I'll fight real hard. Um, but I think your ending point is like is or at least the way I always put it is like the network is the common language that all of these resources communicate on, and they're all built on top of that as a primitive, and it's a primitive that still really matters because that's where all of our traffic, you know, that's what all of our traffic traverses, and I think being able to understand that is um is really important and that I'm, that's not going away and uh yeah that's why we're here but yeah i i i, I learned a bit from you about um about vendor lock lock-in in the networking space and yeah my i've got some homework to do to to you know find some stuff to dig in my heels on i guess yeah, very good well i'm glad to hear it so if, uh, if folks have a question for you, if they want to reach out, maybe they have a comment for you, how can they do that? How can they find yeah, you? Yeah, sure. Um, you're welcome to look me up on LinkedIn, and I will happily uh, talk with you there. Or if you'd like to send me an email, you can send me an email at my first name, rosalind at kentic.com, and I will happily field your questions or chat with you. Great. And you can still find me on Twitter at network underscore Phil. You can search my name in LinkedIn as well, my blog, networkphil.com. Now, if you have an idea for a show or you would like to be a guest on Telemetry Now, please reach out at telemetrynow at kentic.com. I'd love to hear from you and chat about that. And until next time, thanks for listening very much. Bye-bye.